Hello everyone, welcome back to Crop 28. This is Jesse. Really excited to share the first interview I did at COP yesterday uh, with Juan Ramos, who talking about a topic that I really have no, had no background on and excited to learn more about called integrated landscape management. So this should be a nice introduction to that topic. So I'm going to let that interview play now and then I'll come back a little bit at the end to give you some updates on the big food and agriculture related stuff that's been happening at COP in the last couple days. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Alright, hello everyone. Uh, welcome back to Crop 28. It is December 2nd here in Dubai at COP and I'm really excited to be joined by Juan Ramos who is the Senior Finance and Policy Manager for an organization called Eco Agriculture Partners. Uh, he's based in Guatemala. So Juan, maybe you could just start us out with a little bit of introduction about you uh, and some background about what Eco Agri Agriculture Partners is and then we'll get into some more specific questions. Yeah, no, sounds good, and thanks for the invitation. Um, so, yeah, I, I work on, on this issue of integrated landscape management out of this organization called Eco Agriculture Partners, uh, and we also co-convene an initiative called A Thousand Landscapes for One Billion People, um, where we basically think about how we can scale up uh, integrated management approaches for natural resources, uh, putting communities and uh, kind of intermediate governance structures at the center. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so I guess just to get started, what is uh, integrated landscape management and how does it play a role in making agriculture more sustainable? Yeah, so integrated landscape management is, is basically a concept of doing joint planning, coordination and implementation of multi-sectoral projects at a spatial scale which is significant and relevant uh, for biodiversity conservation. Uh, so what that looks like in terms of agriculture is really thinking about how agricultural uh, design uh, at a farm level and kind of at a larger spatial level can be done um, in ways that are sustainable in relation to the natural resources that are available in a place. Um, so a lot of that you know tends to have something to do with water availability, water quality, um, but then there are also of course other ecosystemic services and, and considerations that can be taken into place um, and all of that has to be grounded in place. So. Uh, uh, kind of the, the easiest example to think about why you need to do integrated landscape management in, in context of agriculture is that if you're all dependent on the same water source and agriculture infrastructure, uh, processing plants um, and in industry is using the same water, um, there's only a certain point until all of that will give out. So how can you manage that in conjunction? to ensure that everyone can actually sustainably continue producing and continue living um, in ways that are that are positive for both nature and people. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and could you give us maybe a couple or one example of an integrated landscape management project that Eco Agriculture Partners has done? Sure, so there's there's several that we support around the world and I'll say that we, we don't directly implement projects. What we really do is support communities that are living and organizations that exist in places to, to be able to do the things themselves because it's the only way that they they can be sustainable. So um, we support, for example, right now in uh, San Martin in Peru, I work with the, with the subnational government in uh, coordinating an investment plan for how they can implement a lot of the, the existing kind of uh, integrated uh, development plan that they have related to their NDCs and their climate goals. Um, and, and that basically looks at, at doing analysis into what are 
the investments required for agriculture to transition into more sustainable, for example, agroforestry systems for coffee, um, or for example, how they can do better water management in terms of rice and also how they can reduce runoff. And all of those things require funding, they require resources. So um, thinking about how those investments can be made um, and also having supported them in how those were designed, um, it would be, I think, a, an easy example to, to say very quickly uh, in this context. Yeah, definitely. Um, and something I was kind of curious about when I was trying to do some research before this interview about integrated landscape management was those stakeholder dialogues um, that are happening. There's been a lot of talk at this COP about um, big industrial agribusiness versus um, smallholder farmers. So in those in those um, talks, in those community collaborations, how do you ensure that all parties have an equal voice and that smallholder farmers are can have their voices heard? Yeah, so th there's, of course, this will depend country by country and also the, the way that the governance and, and policy uh, dialogues are set up in a lot of cases. Um, however, one of the best ways to do this is to, to develop kind of multi-stakeholder facilitated participatory processes that can then feed into decision making. Um, and, and to be able to support the, the design of those processes needs to be done in a way that, that ensures considering that participation because as you say, there are always power imbalances in, in place um, and so large agribusiness tends to have more of a voice um, in a lot of contexts so how do you balance those things out can only really be done when bringing everyone together at a table and ensuring that participation and voice um, of smallholder farmers that tend to then be represented by another body. So in some cases, this can be a federation union, this can be a workers union, this can be cooperatives, um, but that's kind of the way that you can put them together at the same table and then have those uh, concerns be voiced. And of course, all of these things end up being negotiated outcomes, even at local levels, because there are um, differences in opinions, there are differences in objectives. Um, so finding consensus is really kind of the key way to keep things moving forward. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, another thing I'm curious about is, as the finance manager, just the role of climate finance uh, in some of these projects. So I was recently reading a statistic that small uh, or farmers in the global south are receiving only like 0.3% of all um, climate finance. So how does climate finance play a role in integrated landscape management and how can we ensure that that is distributed more equitably in the future? Right, so there's a lot of caveats to put into that, which is that climate finance currently and, and how it's used is, is really towards renewable energies at the moment. Uh, the, the big focus is on energy um, and so all, the largest bulk of that tends to go into those kinds of investments, which then when it's distributed, tend to go also to most developed countries. And so as you're saying, a lot of developing countries have a very large difficulty accessing that finance simply because the way our financial architecture is set up doesn't allow for, for smallholder farmers to access it. And also it's, it's very difficult when you think about it to get finance into the hands of smallholder farmers because of accessibility concerns, transaction costs, and then overall the lack of um, financial history that most smallholder farmers have. So when you put all of those things together, um, it ends up really being that climate finance is not actually reaching almost any smallholder farmer. And the few times that you do have this happen, it tends to be through subsidies or programs that are led by philanthropy, organizations, or 
um, or highly subsidized uh, financial vehicles. Um, so in a way, one of the ways to really start mobilizing more towards these smallholder needs um, is to be able to aggregate certain amounts of projects so that they can be asked for in conjunction, so that they can be more attractive from an impact and from a, a financing perspective uh, to be invested in. And that's something that we really do work on at A Thousand Landscapes, where it's finding and developing the blueprints for, for how those have been done before, bringing out the lessons learned so that more can be designed in the future. Okay, thank you. Um, and along those lines, I'm just curious on kind of the logistic scale for these integrated landscape management projects, who is actually funding those? Is it development banks? Is it national governments? Is it private investment? Where is that money coming from for these when these projects are happening? So a lot of the initiatives that are convened tend to actually be done in a lot of cases in a voluntary basis just because of the sheer need for it. Um, so in Africa, in India, you'll have uh, something we refer to as a landscape leader who just sees the need for it and then catalyzes that uh, because no one else is doing it, basically. You, you, this is something that you generally also see because when you think about government and you think about how things are coordinated and decided on, you know, agriculture, environment, infrastructure, no one talks to each other. So no one's actually coordinating things. Um, so, in a, some, so in some cases, it is more voluntarily led. In others, you have larger philanthropies like the IKEA Foundation, the Laudis Foundation, um, different kinds of also very large uh, family foundations focused on environment that have focused on this as being kind of a, a core way that they see to bring impact. So they also fund that and they do so generally through intermediary institutions. So um, some of them kind of like the World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International work on some of those, those specific aspects of designing that governance um, and the funding itself tends to come from these foundations. And in others, which are more private sector led, they tend to be in areas which are very high risk in terms of sourcing um, products for those companies. So what that basically means is um, in Ghana, for example, there are a lot of landscape initiatives that are funded through cacao companies because they're worried about how sustainable the supply of cacao will be in the future. Okay. Thank you. Um, and now just two questions about um, maybe what some of these projects look like more on the ground. What role does technology and technological advancements play in some of these uh, integrated landscape management projects? No, it, it's, it's really massive and, and it's a big question because as you can imagine, um, how do you monitor for improvement or for adaptive decision making at a larger spatial scale? Um, and technology enables that and has gotten increasingly better at doing that at, at a plot size. Um, but at larger spatial scales, it, it is inherently more difficult and more expensive. Um, and so it is the biggest area where there can be growth and there are ways to um, start integrating that um, more into these integrated landscape management initiatives. Um, however, for the moment, most of them do use more the traditional GIS technology and, and kind of manual monitoring in addition to additional data sources that are layered on it um, but it's not used as much honestly because a lot of the newer technology which is more advanced for monitoring reporting and verification kind of like the MRV um, systems and kind of the more satellite data um, hasn't really gotten to the point where there's enough capacity that a lot of people are really using it um, even though there's a huge interest to start using those kinds of data sets. 
Okay, thank you. Um, and I was reading on the Eco Agriculture Partners website a little bit about biodiversity, agroforestry, and also agroecology. So I know this probably changes um, on the individual basis, but uh, what is the relationship between um, integrated landscape management and biodiversity, agroforestry, and agroecology? Right, so integrated landscape management is really an approach and a process for how you can increase uptake of all of the things that you just described, basically. So um, agroforestry at a plot level, how, do you, how can you think about increasing that into a point where it's actually starting to support biodiversity impacts? Um, and uh, I think a big example that, that tends to be used for this is Costa Rica, which was that they were really at a point of, of significant decline in terms of biodiversity area. And one of the key ways that they managed to start recovering it was agroforestry design through coffee, where the coffee in agroforestry systems became biodiversity corridors for wildlife in conjunction with protected area management and conservation areas, where together they really were able to bring back a lot of the ecosystemic services that sustain biodiversity and the practices around agroforestry were the ones that really help uptake them. Um, and from an agroecology perspective, there there's generally tends to be a very strong cultural element to it as well, where agroecology isn't simply a set of practices, but it's also an aspect of identity of, of the communities that are undertaking it. So again, when you're thinking about managing in this integrated way, communities are at the center of it and, and local uh, indigenous practice and knowledge uh, tends to be what drives a lot of this work in, in many places around the world. Okay, thank you. Just a couple more questions. One is, uh, given your focus on South America, that's a region I guess I'm a little more unfamiliar with in terms of the agricultural ag agricultural scenario. So in general, and I know this can change on the country scale, even on the re scale within countries, but what is the overall situation in terms of industrial agriculture, um, environmental degradation, um, conservation, climate finance? If you give me a little bit of an overview, I know that's kind of a big question. Right. Um, so it, it depends country to country, really. So in the Amazon, as you imagine, like Brazil has a massive cattle industry, and that tends to be a big aspect of, of South America, uh, Paraguay, Brazil, Argentina. They're all massive beef producers, and a lot of that tends to get exported to the United States and to China. Sorry, actually, no, the European Union and to China. Um, and so there's a huge push and a huge drive because of the... Um, the money that that brings in for, for the country um, to continue to, to really facilitate those practices and, and that really drives massive amounts of deforestation because of the amount of land mass you need to cheaply produce beef. Um, so that, that has a, a, a really difficult impact of course on conservation where conservation areas um, are threatened by a lot of these uh, large practices and soy as a commodity is also a massive issue. Um, because it gets exported, because it, it has such a massive demand on international markets as a commodity, uh, it creates a lot of negative uh, downturn uh, in terms of conservation area and forest standing. Uh, from a climate finance perspective, there are increasingly now efforts to uh, flow much more money into these countries to support these efforts. And at COP28, there's been a lot of announcements in relation to that where the Amazon is being kind of grouped together from the countries that make up the, the biome so that it can receive finance in a way that uh, will support those goals. Um, but of course, it's difficult because it's not just receiving money. It's also being able to know and to have implementation mechanisms for where to take that money afterwards. 
um, and those in, in many cases do not yet exist because there's never really been a need or a pipeline for climate and nature conservation related projects that, that have the scale that we now need for, um, for the climate goals to be achieved. Okay, uh, and just related to that, I was thinking as you were talking about that, is there any ever any tension between um, some of those big industry interests like soy or cattle and this integrated landscape management? Is there any tension between those? There, yes, there can be, and in a lot of cases there is simply because the mandate from companies and from particularly multinational corporations that don't necessarily have a stake in the places where they're sourcing from is to maximize their profits. and. So that doesn't have any data point which would say that this, you know, increases the point of the sustainability or this is a point where we're now destroying everything. Um, so since that's not taken into account, their only metrics tend to be profit and loss. Whereas for communities, whereas for smallholder farmers or, or these kinds of coalitions and collectives that are looking at managing their resources sustainably, uh, that creates an inevitable tension where the more that you produce soy or the more that you start deforesting into landscape the less water that's available for the rest of the community or the or other sectors to use um and and that has to find a way into like how do you then manage those tensions um with this is also why policy becomes such a big issue in this in where private sector uh, regulations for overuse of water or for um practices that they need to maintain on farm in relation to practices are so important because if you don't have those there's no real reason why a company would add additional costs to something that no one is asking them to invest in okay thank you uh, and just the last question for today thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me what are your goals for this cop so both personally you have the eco agriculture uh, booth right over there in the meetings you're going to and then in the negotiations and the announcements what are you hoping to see at this cop there's, so there's been a lot of positive signals from COP and, and as a high level kind of political forum where there are certain agreements that are negotiated and others that are non-negotiated. For the moment, we've only seen the non-negotiated ones, um, which are kind of like these declarations for food systems, for example, that were announced, which are very encouraging that over 130 countries are now thinking that they're going to integrate food system actions into their national uh, determined contributions for climate. Um, and there's a lot of movement also on nature and thinking about how different financial instruments can be developed to support uh, natural resource conservation and also biodiversity conservation. Um, so positive aspects in there, you have the loss and damage fund which was also approved and I think it's over 600 million now. Um, and then kind of in the negotiations themselves, they're, ideally would be a big push on carbon markets, um, having more clarity around their functioning um, and having more clarity on, on distribution, which is currently very unclear. Um, and then kind of like more from a personal organizational perspective, um, we're meeting a lot of our partners here to deepen collaboration and to, to also share a lot of progress that's been, been being made. And also in terms of doing outreach at the policy level, there's a brief for the EU Green New Deal that we collaborated with from partners from Common Land, uh, Climate Kick. Uh, we're also working with uh, UNDP and a couple of their GEF programs. So uh, basically being able to, to, to see what progress was being made and also just deepen those conversations um, much more at the subnational level and, and how those interlinkages can then be made in the future. 
Great. And just to close out, is there anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover or any uh, other resources if people want to learn more about integrated landscape management or eco-agriculture partners? Um, no, you can you can look at our website for the Thousand Landscapes Initiative, which I think is landscapes.global. Um, I think in the U.S. also, I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on um, in relation to technology use and agriculture and thinking about protocols for proving impact and, and carbon sequestration. So there's, there's a really fantastic community growing around something called Regen Network, uh, which is this kind of like Web3 based platform. Uh, which is trying to put kind of the hands of protocol development, science validation for carbon and biodiversity and kind of ecosystemic co-benefits into the hands of, of the ones who are actually doing it on the ground um, and finding ways to quantify those values. So that could also be a really interesting resource. So that was my interview with Juan. I think it went very well. Hopefully he enjoyed it too. And I'm excited to delve into that topic a little more and research more about what landscape management looks like on the ground. And now I just want to take a couple minutes to go over, give you all some updates about what's been happening in the negotiations related to food and agriculture at COP28. So the big thing, first of all, was on December 1st, uh, actually, they did reach an agreement called the COP28 UAE Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems, and Climate Action, which was signed by 134 countries, and those countries represent over 5.7 billion people, and they represent 70% of the food we eat and 76% of the total emissions from the global food system. So it's a big, broad group of signatories. Basically, not the strongest language, um, recognizes that climate change affects agriculture and that agriculture can be a climate solution. Its objectives are basically just to scale up resilience, promote food security, support livelihoods, and maximize the climate benefits of agriculture. So kind of just the simple stuff. Um, and they are making the commitments in it are to, by 2025, incorporate agriculture and food systems into these national plans, the national adaptation plans or the nationally determined contributions that I was talking about a little bit on the last episode to scale up financing, to strengthen the WTO, World Trade Organization, uh, trade system related to food and agriculture, and then to review the pro progress next year. Along with this announcement, there was also something called the Action Agenda on Regenerative Landscapes, which was an announcement made by COP28 and kind of the business slash investment community. And that will basically see um, food and agriculture organizations scale up something called regenerative agriculture. They're, the goal is to transition 160 million hectares to regenerative agriculture by 2030, and to include that with future $2.2 billion of future investment. Another big announcement, this is more on the philanthropic and research and development side was the United Arab Emirates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation made new commitments of $200 million to CGIR, which is a leading international research organization that's got many different hubs uh, related to food and agriculture. You can look up that system. Those are, they're very, that's the main research and development organization around the world for food and agriculture. And that's related to, they earlier launched, um, CGIR launched an investment bid uh, to get to $4 billion by 2027. So this is really the big push for investments in research and development. The reactions to these um, 
announcements has been definitely one of excitement. This is the first um, resolution at any COP to draw, like big resolution to draw the line between climate change and food, which is kind of surprising, but definitely a big first step. But at the same time, the language is pretty vague as I, those, those priorities that I outlined about scaling up resilience, promoting food security, supporting livelihoods, maximizing climate benefits, those can kind of be turned any which way. Um, and the, there are no measurable targets, like just saying include agriculture in the, in the national national plans could mean kind of anything. Um, and it doesn't really talk about some of the big issues that I've been hearing in some of the side events. So healthy diets, fa uh, like more plant-based diets, sa phasing out fossil fuels, reducing overconsumption, those are not mentioned at all. So yeah, and then there's also those links to agribusiness and focusing on um, science and innovation, kind of these more tech side, tech side solutions and public-private partnerships. So really not much talk about structural change or regulation on industrial food systems. I mean, if we weren't really expecting that because <laughs> those are the power, power stakeholders. So I think first step, it seems like with many of these COP things, it's long after something like this should have happened. And it's still, this is not, this agreement will not get us to where we need to be, not by a long shot, but it is a first step based on where we had been, we've been before. So that's that. I'll include some links to that agreement and to some of the reaction in the show notes. So you can take a look and make your own opinion on that. Another, or related to that, um, a group of civil society actors, I think over 150 organizations, announced a call to action related to this this big agreement. So this is looking for more um, time-based agreements, so with a deadline, more holistic and global targets by COP29 that um, includes further accountability for uh, business and finance actors. So it's kind of like a more ambitious implement implementation with some stronger language and harder agreements for that big declaration. So I'll also include a link to that call to action for civil society. And then one other thing I wanted to share about was something that's not part of the main COP, but was happening on the side and is a big deal as well. 25, an announcement that 25 leading philanthropies are issued a joint call for a tenfold increase in funding for uh, regenerative agriculture and agroecology. So this, the goal is actually to catalyze a transition to 50% regenerative or agroecological agroecological systems by 2040 and then ensure that all systems are transitioning to regenerative or agroecology by 2050. And this is related to meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, the 1.5 goal, phasing out fossil fuels, phasing out agrochemicals, and really making that transition to those more sustainable systems. So that's really a big deal. In general, at the side events, agroecology has been talked about a ton. So it's definitely making a bigger way into the conversation. Again, there's def a definite disconnect between what's happening at the side events and what's happening at the main negotiations. I would be very surprised if, if agroecology would have been mentioned in that big agreement. But this is a big deal that these philanthropies are putting money forward towards making, I mean, 50% and then 100% by 2050. That would be a big deal. It's still a ways away. And the effects of the climate crisis would be, are going to continue until 2050. So there's that. 
And then the one other just caveat I would like to add about this agreement is, and I've seen some discussion about this, regenerative agriculture is still a pretty vague term and is kind of being used by a lot of companies. Like I think McDonald's may say, may claim that it practices regenerative agriculture. So that is maybe kind of something like climate smart agriculture, which the definition makes it so vague that it can be kind of greenwashed. So that investment is great, but then when you're saying regenerative and agroecological systems, which of those is going is it going to be, and how are those terms going to be defined? So that's just something to be to be wary of. So I'll I'll leave it there for today. I'll I'll definitely include some links in the show notes about these things, but hoping to do some more interviews soon, and I'll keep anyone I'll keep you all updated with any other announcements that come out. So thank you for listening, and hope to see you soon. Bye. Woo! Woo! Woo!